Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Hello and welcome everyone to Profiles and Strategy, episode 32, talking about urban warfare and the strategy of urban warfare. I'm Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps, your host. Joining me today, my colleagues from the Strategy and Policy Department at the United States Naval War College. First, Dr. Nick Sarantakis. Nick, welcome. Welcome, Hornsby. <laughs> Next, Dr. Tim Hoyt. Tim, welcome. Good morning. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Dave Stone. Dave, welcome. Good to be here. All right, great. So talking about the concept of um, urban warfare, we have, we have two of our theorists, the primary theorists that we study in, in, the, in the strategy and policy course, both Sunsa and uh, Clausewitz, that have very different ideas about um, fighting in a city. So Sunsa, openly says in the chapter on offensive strategy, the worst policy is to attack cities, attack cities only when there is no alternative. So he's very definitive. Whereas Carl von Clausewitz, who we love to talk about a lot in the department, in the, in the chapter when he's talking about center of gravity, says first, uh, uh, destruction of the army, if it is significant. Second is the seizure of his capital if it is not only the center of administration, but also that of social, professional, and political activity, or dealing an effective blow against his ally. So, so Clausewitz seems to, seems to think that attacking a city in the form of the capital uh, is, is potentially a necessary thing. So we have very much a um, diametrically opposed view on, on this. And so I wanted that to be our lead in in terms of why is it a good idea to fight in cities, to attack strategy, what are our historical examples that can speak either way? And, uh, and Nick, why don't we go ahead and start, open up the conversation with you? Well, I think uh, cities, it, to be a little academic-y, uh, people live in cities for a reason. Uh, cities exist for reasons. Um, and we all know they're all built up and um, fighting in them is rather difficult. But, uh, you know, cities are, transportation centers, their uh, population centers, their political centers, industrial production centers, a lot of other things. And um, sometimes attacking one can be very valuable if you want to destroy a transportation network or you want to have an outsized political effect on your opponent. Uh, there are also reasons why you would defend a city for many of those same reasons. So it can be a very, very um, productive significant type of engagement. But on the other hand, as I'm sure we'll get into, uh, fighting in them is, is it, it's difficult uh, because it's constrained and you have a lot of natural, you have a lot of barriers. So it, it's, I, I get why both of them are saying what they're saying. Okay, uh, Tim, we'll go to you next. Sure, I mean, I think one thing to put in context is when they both were writing, and I think actually neither of them is really writing about fighting in cities. They are talking about 
which is sort of a tactical problem that we can discuss. They're looking more at the impact of um, focusing on a city as a critical element of a campaign in terms of how it affects operations and strategy. And I think what Sunza is saying is that, look, if you are attacking cities, that means you're engaged in siege warfare, which means your army is fixed in place and it's fixed in place for a protracted time, which means it's going to be tied up and your, your state is surrounded by other enemies who may take advantage of it while your army is tied up in the field. In addition, when your army is engaged in a siege, especially pre-19th century, you tend to lose about half of it to disease. Um, and so attrition of your forces is very high, even if your siege is successful. Uh, storming the city, the tactical problem, also wastes huge numbers of men throughout history. Um, so Sunzi is using it as a caution. He's saying, look, um, don't attack cities unless you absolutely have to, because it violates everything else he's telling you to do in the book. Now, Clausewitz isn't actually saying we should fight in cities either. Um, what he's saying, based on his, the experience, not only of the Napoleonic Wars, but also of 18th century wars, um, forcing your enemy out of their capital may have a disproportionate effect on uh, their ability to continue to resist. Uh, the capital is the head of administration. It's the head of politics. Uh, it's probably the economic center, pre-industrial, um, and maybe the only major economic system or center in any given country. So finding ways to menace the capital forces your enemy to fight at a disadvantage um, or may force your enemy to give up the capital. In that respect, it's worth looking at the wars between France and Austria during the Napoleonic period. Almost every time the French army menaces Vienna, the Austrians surrender. Um, sometimes they surrender after they fight a battle to try and protect Vienna. Sometimes they surrender because they don't want to lose Vienna and they would rather give up peripheral territories elsewhere in the empire. Um, but again, that's not saying we should fight in cities. It's talking about what the value of cities are um, in terms of thinking strategically and operationally, um, and that they may therefore be a center of gravity. If you can't fix the enemy army, if you move towards their city or their, their capital, they may then be forced to fight, which would allow you to fix them and defeat their army, which is his highest priority. I have to jump in with a quick line that uh, uh, playing off something Tim says. So Tim Noah said, when 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 Vienna's attacked, the Austrians surrender. Like, when don't the Austrians surrender in the Napoleonic Wars would be my cheap shot at the Austrians. I would say 1814. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. They lose yeah. every battle, but the last ones. Right. The important one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, Dave, we'll go to you next. So I, I would echo my, my colleagues. I might just be a little more deliberately provocative. Um, so when you sent around the email about the talking about urban warfare and the role of cities, um, I, I had this offhand line about Willie Sutton's, the bank robbers old line. People ask Willie Sutton, why do you rob banks? And supposedly says, well, that's where the money is. And so, well, why would you attack a city? Well, that's where the people are and the industry is and the center of government is in the symbolic way. You know, there's, there's good reasons to do that. Where I'm going to be provocative is that I'll say, and this may get me drummed out of the strategy and policy department, I think this is a place where to a large degree Sun Tzu and Clausewitz's calculations have been to a large degree overtaken by changes in technology. Because both Sun Tzu and Clausewitz are dealing with militaries that are essentially can move cross country. And obviously a Napoleonic army would prefer to march on a road, but it doesn't have to. Um, and even um, sort of Clausewitz in the, at the very beginning of the industrial age, we're not really looking at industrial warfare. 
Uh, and so the role of cities becomes disproportionately important when they become road nexuses, when they become rail hubs, when they're centers of industry. And so the, the, the value of the object in control of a city or denial of a city to the adversary is much greater, I think. Um, when we get past the Clausewitzian era. And so for that reason, I think this is this is a case where the, the, the theorists might actually steer us wrong. Mm, okay, Tim, we'll go back to you. Yeah, I was going to say, from what Dave said, just to give a comparison, only 30 years after Clausewitz dies, 30 plus, um, you see this phenomenon, why is the battle fought at Gettysburg? The reason the battle is fought at Gettysburg is because that's the intersection of eight major roads. Right. right, which is what allows different core and divisions to move and concentrate in time and space, and it also controls the local Pennsylvania economy. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, the importance of cities has changed with industrialization and mass transport, um, mass transit. Well, and so, actually, I, I I hadn't thought about that, but I'm, again, sort of Tim's going to play off my my point. I'll play off his. Um, and the Civil War is interesting because tactical mobility is still what it was for Clausewitz or for Sun Tzu, like horseback or on foot. Um, but strategic mobility is very different. Um, yeah. And so you can think about like the siege of Vicksburg. Well, why would you spend all this time and energy besieging Vicksburg? It's because it sits on a major waterway and you need that major waterway for strategic logistics. Uh, and so, again, I think there's a, the, the, the role of cities makes them valuable for warfare in ways, uh, particularly when we get to the modern era that weren't necessarily the case for the, the earlier theorists we look at. So I guess that does kind of um, a lot of great thoughts coming out here, but that does kind of um, play on a theme of, of what you said, Dave, about uh, about technology in the sense of um, fighting in a city back in, in those days still had somewhat of a different connotation than it does today in the sense that the whole room clearing going house by house, block by block, you didn't it was it was a little bit different whereas today it's a lot more because of the urban density different construction of cities um uh, the way cities have kind of sprawl like you know even to, to your point tim the, the battle of gettysburg yeah they were around the city but really they're fighting on the ridges and the and whatever you know the headquarters might have been in the building but when they cleared through the city it wasn't a room by room thing you know it was it was um um much more kind of still being fought in the in the the terrain around the city whereas today when you think about say um you know stalingrad leningrad from world war ii on it was very much a room by room house by house very bloody very um nasty type of of warfare uh I, i'll throw in a quick um vignette from my own service the marine corps did studies back in the 90s uh called urban warrior because um the theory was that the world's population, you know, I forget what the percentage was, something like 40% of the world's population was going to live in the littoral regions by uh, after the, you know, uh, by 2020 or something like that. And the theory was we're going, if we come from the sea, we're going, the first thing we're going to do is to have to fight in the city, most likely, because that's where the people are. And nowadays with the mega cities and how uh, urban sprawl and population density has exponentially increased in these cities, it's going to be a very nasty affair. So the Marine Corps started instituting more urban training and, and how to fight in a city and theorizing about how to do it. And then we saw that play out in places like Fallujah during um, the Iraq uh, campaign. So, um, you know, has, but it, it, I want to get back to this point strategically, is it still a good idea to have to to attack a city does it give you that 
that political leverage that you that you thought in the context of uh, Tim. Why don't we why don't we kind of put it in the context of talking about what you said in terms about the political symbolism, uh, the Easter Rising, 1916. Symbolically, it makes sense for the uh, the Catholics to seize the government center. Is is that is the, and then the British bombard it with artillery? Is that is that part of this kind of whole thing? Well, I mean, again, here we're we're switching um, from time periods again, right? And one of the things that we see uh, because of small arms technology, um, also because of social mobilization, the rise of revolutionary ideologies. Um, and increasing urbanization, simply population growth. Um, cities become much more complex in the 20th century than they were in the 19th. I think also that what happens in Dublin in 1916 is really the, it's nearly the end of a wave of internal uprisings that swept across Europe that followed roughly the same model. The idea being that you would sort of create an underground movement that underground movement would swell in numbers. You would look for a time of vulnerability, um, and then you would rise in the capital city for the reasons I think that Clausewitz wrote about the capital city as a center of gravity. It's the center of government. It's the center of the economy. It's got major population. The assumption was that if you rose, the population would rise with you, as the French Revolution demonstrated. Um, and we see this in Central Europe in the 1840s. Um, we see it in Paris in 1870 and 71. Uh, we see it in Dublin in 1916. And then the last and most successful of these, which sort of caps this as a, a successful model, is actually the Russian Revolution. Um, but I think uh, the reasons for risings in cities were to try and get the maximum political impact, which was usually very idealistic out of a relatively small military force. Um, and most of these failed. And part of the reason they failed was that governments adapted. Um, the reason Washington DC looks the way it does today in terms of street layout is because it imitated what the French did after several failed rebellions, at least one of which is in uh, the movie Les Miserables. Um, several failed urban rebellions where the French tore down a lot of buildings and then they put these huge plazas and big circles and broad streets branching out in every direction, which made putting up barricades harder and allowed you to move artillery into the city, which would allow you to put down any future rebellion. That hadn't happened in Dublin. Um, and so when the, when the Irish rise, they rise with a thousand men, um, maybe peaking out at 1500 by the end of the week. Uh, and they were very poorly armed. Um, there was a real tension among the leadership about how and how they were going to fight. Uh, James Connolly, who's the socialist leader, uh, had the most sort of down to earth and practical tactical view and put out a couple of manuals saying this is why fighting in cities is really good for revolutionaries. Um, the leadership, the broader leadership of the volunteer movement sort of took big positions in the center of town that supposedly were gonna be mutually supporting, but they didn't take key facilities in the town that actually might have given the rebellion a better chance of success. They really needed to take Dublin Castle, which was the administrative center. And they actually had troops in the castle early in the rebellion and then retreated. They needed to hold the train stations because that was how the British were gonna reinforce. They should have taken over the port facilities. All of these things didn't happen. And as a result, you had a bloody urban combat for a number of days 
Um, most of Britain's losses, I think the majority of Britain's losses were taken in one encounter where an untrained regiment marched up a street into the fire of 10 guys. And because the regiment hadn't had any training in musketry yet, uh, and the officers were green, they just kept attacking buildings by bayonet and suffered over 200 casualties, uh, dozens of fatalities. So it was an ugly combat. Um, I'm not sure that it was anything like later urban combat, uh, but it did demonstrate some of the limitations of thinking about rebellion and ir irregular warfare that had come through from the 19th century and got people thinking about it very differently, which is why the Irish then fight very differently in 1919 to 1922. Okay, Dave, we'll, uh, we'll segue to you. Yeah, so I think Tim has hit on a really interesting point, which is the way in which the role of cities in, in warfare kind of changes and changes almost pretty abruptly um, at the end of the First World War. Because as, as Tim said, and I think quite rightly, you're looking really at kind of insurrection and of political warfare, political uprisings, um, and cities as centers of political power and natural places to do that. And it's really when you get to World War II and after that you get to things like Stalingrad and Warsaw and Manila that, that Nick is working on now or Hue in Vietnam. Um, and so the, the one thing that, that Tim said that, that kind of shook something loose for me is when he talks about the failures of the Easter Rising in Dublin, he's looking at things that just a year later, um, the Bolsheviks got right in Petrograd. Leon Trotsky, when he takes power in Petrograd, essentially it's an, it's, you could argue it's a kind of Easter Rising in yeah. that it's this sort of militant worker group seizing power in the capital city, only they do it right. They do it against a much weaker um, state structure, but Trotsky is very clear. We need to take nodes of communication. We take nodes of transportation. We seize bridges over the canals. We are going to do this right and sort of present our adversaries with a fait accompli. They may have much greater military power, but if they can't bring that military power to bear, then we win. So again, there's lots to be said about later sort of more traditional urban warfare, but I think I wanted to bring that in in response to what Tim was saying about uh, the kind of this era of urban revolution. So, the, so I guess the, the larger point is Political symbolism is one thing, but you also have to seize the capability and capacity that uh, <laughs> allows you to sustain that political symbolism. Well, I think I think most of these urban uprisings hoped that the mere um, presence of large numbers of revolutionary armed men would immediately mobilize the rest of the the rest of the civilian population on their behalf because. Everyone in the population was basically simmering and waiting for an excuse to have a revolution. Um, again, in Russia's case, that may have been more correct. It certainly was much more correct than it was in Ireland. Um, and I think we've seen this idea of sort of propaganda of the deed has come out in terrorist campaigns. It's come out in irregular warfare. Um, it reemerges again in the 1960s with Carlos Marighella and others who start talking about urban guerrillas uh, and synchronizing urban terrorism with rural insurgency. Um, you know, these are ongoing threads. The importance of cities for an insurgent remains quite high. Um, cities are places that have resources. Um, and if you, you know, as a comparison, when is it that ISIS really gets powerful? It really gets powerful when it starts taking over major cities. Right, because then it has resource bases from which it can extract and expand its war effort. So, you know, the city remains very important just as a concept and as a resource base. It's just harder and harder uh, for insurgents to seize them, usually against a competent state power. Okay, uh, Nick, we'll go to you next. To this. 
Yeah, I think the discussion here is, is important because, you know, a, there have been a lot of studies on urban warfare, you know, particularly in the second half of the 20th century after, after World War II, because people worried, as, as you mentioned, that you're going to have to fight. Uh, a lot of people glom on to Stalingrad. That might actually be the, the big battle that is the, the difference. Um, is, it's so exceptional that it's dangerous to look at it for lessons. But um, what, what I'm hearing is one of the things that really matters is you have people who know how to fight. And there's an article that came out that said the city is neutral, uh, where two British uh, uh, authors, one uh, army colonel and another uh, academic, who basically say, uh, you know, they're, they're taking a uh, spin off the, uh, the book, The Jungle's Neutral, basically says cities are neutral. Uh, what really matters is if you're trained and you know how to fight. And obviously, knowing how to fighting in a city uh, requires certain skill sets, just like fighting in, in a jungle requires certain skill sets and certain weaponry and stuff like this. But the more competent, the more trained you are, the easier it is to adjust uh, to these fights. So um, I think it's out, you know, the, the Russians collapse because, you know, it's coming at the end. I, and this is my take. Dave can correct me. It's, it sounds like the Russians collapse collapse because you know they're they're exhausted they've been in a war for three years and the opponents are doing the right thing and um you know so i, I and there are plenty of examples where people are you know are fighting for controls of you know buildings and it takes a week to take a building and if you're doing that inside a city it, it's going to be an enormously long battle and that you know as we pointed out that gets to issues of logistics uh you know uh, how many casualties can you take in this is all kind of relative. How long is long? Um, you know, Stalingrad is, you know, what, four months long, five months long? About six, but yeah. Yeah, yeah and uh, it enormously uh, consumes enormous amounts of casualties. Uh, Manila is long in the sense that, you know, it's four weeks, but uh, it doesn't consume a lot of casualties, at least for the Americans. And uh, compared to Stalingrad, it's fairly short. Um, so it's always kind of, when we're talking about uh, fighting in cities, there is a danger in looking at kind of focusing on the tactics, but also the tactics matter. Um, these battles are going to be slow, but how slow is slow? Is, is, so let me come back at you real quick on that point, Nick, because um, we're talking about political symbolism. Mm-hmm. Is there a political symbolism in the sense of the liberation of Manila in 1944? And does that have a psychological impact in terms of breaking Japanese um, resistance? Well, for the Japanese, no. Uh, it's important for the Filipinos. Mm -hmm. um, Manila is important more in an operational sense in the sense that it's a, um, a port facility and you need a port facility to invade Japan. But I, I may or may not be disagreeing with Tim and Dave. I think cities are exceptionally important throughout time. And I think, you know, the collapse of Rome, the collapse of uh, Constantinople, these are game changers. Um, so uh, but what about, so I, I, I the, 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 so what you just said there, right, about mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's important, it's important. In order to liberate the city, we have to destroy it. In order to defend the city, the Japanese destroy it. Yeah. So, so if our aim, if our if our strategic aim is to get a 
port that we can then use for the uh, springboard invasion of Japan that's still going to happen at this point, planning phase in 1944. We haven't achieved that, that strategic objective because we've destroyed the city in order to liberate it. Is it was yeah. there, I mean... Yeah, and that's, and that's the dangerous thing about fighting in a city is you have to ask yourself, why is it important? And it, we were talking about this earlier. If you fight in a city, you're going to damage it. You're going to, regardless of how good you are, you know, precision weaponry, you're going to do damage. You're going to kill civilians. Yeah. The question is, you know, how much damage can you tolerate? And does the damage destroy the very reason why you want to take the city? Right. Um, and it, it depends. Is this your city or is this the enemy city or is it, you know, a, a third party city? And in a lot of ways, at least in the example I'm familiar with, you had to take Manila. It's just like you had to go into France or you had to go into Paris. The, your ally is just insisting on it. You can't ignore Manila. You can't ignore Paris in 1944. You can't ignore uh, Manila in 1945 because the ally is going to expect it. What about, uh, so, so let me actually, uh, Tim, I'll, I'll segue to you, but with this, this question, because uh, it's about something you just mentioned uh, earlier. So two different models uh, of, of talking about the cities. Um, uh, so 1916, Ireland, British go in, bombard, the, destroy the government center in order to take it back, right? But you also mentioned the Franco-Prussian War. The Prussians have a very different model in the sense the, after the, uh, Napoleon's defeated at, uh, Napoleon III is defeated at Sedan, the Parisians, uh, you know, declare the, what is it, the Second or Third Republic and say, no, we're going to keep fighting. The Prussians have to march on Paris, but they don't, uh, they don't fight house to house. They besiege Paris yeah. and force capitulation through starvation, which yeah. <laughs> still pretty gruesome, but it doesn't, you know, destroy Paris or at least destroy it to the degree that, um, you know, going house to house necessarily would. So, again, it kind of goes back to this point of achieving your aim with not having to fight in a city. Tim, what do you, what do you think? Well, I think, you know, one thing we haven't really talked about, um, we've talked a bit about the role of the city in the modern era. One of the things that cities do simply because of their urban buildup um, and because of kind of compartmentalization of terrain, you talked about house to house, um, they make combined arms warfare much, much more difficult. And combined arms warfare in the open has proven to be um, more often decisive than attrition. But once you're fighting in a city, the ability to wage combined arms warfare erodes significantly um, and encounters become much more tactical, at least in many cases in a well-defended city. Um, that then increases your losses, increases the amount of time to, to regain control or to assert control. Um, and because you have to drive people out of what are hasty or even well-prepared fortified positions, there are two ways to do that. You either go in with infantry or you tend to use a lot more firepower um, to save your own lives. And that then results in the city often being destroyed uh, because of tactical requirements. We're seeing this in Bakhmut. Yeah. You know, Bakhmut's a, a town of 70 to 100,000 people. I mean, it's, it's a city. Um, it's not quite as big as Providence. It's bigger than Warwick. Um, but it has somehow not Those only... Those cities in Rhode Island for people who are listening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Rhode Island, the metropole. Um, 
but I think it, you know, I think it's important and instructive that um, it shows us both the tactical problems of fighting in cities if they are going to be defended by trained, prepared troops. And it shows how the fighting in a city can take on a symbolic importance of its own. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, Bakhmut and Stalingrad are very, very different in some ways, but it does appear that the Russians have put enormous emphasis on taking Bakhmut. And as a result, the Ukrainians have decided to defend it fairly vigorously um, and take high losses in a bloody attrition campaign uh, because it's wearing down Russian forces and preventing them from doing training of new conscripts or reservists. Um, they feel that that attrition trade-off is worthwhile. And now it has become an important symbol for both. Um, that's an interesting phenomenon. And it's one that we see in a lot of different places. Um, a city, once it's occupied or becomes a battleground, may grow in importance. And the, the question I typed in here earlier, um, you know, it may be that the symbolic importance for the Americans of Manila is more in MacArthur's mind as the commander than it is actually an American policy or strategy. But MacArthur has said, I shall return. He put great emotional pressure on US leadership to make sure that they would invade the Philippines so that he could return. And Manila is the capital of the Philippines. Now, Nick, your, your, um, your research may support or oppose that, but sort of in a broad swath, it would seem to me that that might be one of the major reasons that the U.S. decides it's going to get involved in Manila rather than kind of bypassing it or, or you know, containing it. Um, so yeah, why don't we go to Dave next, because Dave had a, a comment. Yeah, just sort of picking up on, on Tim's point about how urban terrain makes combined arms more difficult. Um, I think there's a, a nice illustration of that in terms of the Soviet World War II experience. Uh, in 1941, when the Germans go in, clearly the Soviets have real problems operating. They're not in, anywhere close to the level of effectiveness that the Germans have. But there are these weird exceptions in 1941 where the Soviets fight effectively, and they fight effectively when the terrain gets close, um, either in, fort in fortifications or in the city of Odessa. Um, the, so the Soviets are able to put up a lot of resistance in Sevastopol, the, the base of the Black Sea Fleet. Um, the Germans can no longer use maneuver and air power and combined arms to uh, uh, fight effectively. And so that puts it on the attrition ground where the Soviets can match better. And so I would just, I would push back on the concept that, that Nick was sort of bringing up here of this, the, the, the city is neutral because um, the city is neutral. Yes, everybody has trouble fighting in cities, but technological advances go away to a degree. Um, in Stalingrad itself, just one quick kind of anecdote that illustrates the point, Chukov, who is the commander of Soviet forces at Stalingrad, had his soldiers get as close to German lines in the city as possible to take away German air power um, so that the German technological edge was no longer operative. And so that put things on kind of a more even playing field. So again, just to illustrate the bigger point that Tim was making. Mm. Um, so Nick, did you want to have a, a point well, about the, the... Yeah, um, there, there certainly is a debate uh, on, you know, is the city neutral? And there are plenty of people who are pushing back against this. Uh, um, you know, Pete Mansour, who is a, um, an army colonel, retired army colonel, now is a professor of history at um, Ohio State. Uh, he's president of the Society for Military History at the moment. He's pushing back on that, uh, using Manila as an example. So, you know, we're, we're in, you know, uh, professional uh, friendly disagreement on this. But um, there, and there are other people who are doing that as well. 
uh, and Tim, that's a really good point. And MacArthur's personality does come into play to to some degree, um, but not quite the way people would expect. Uh, and there are examples of, um, at least in Manila, where it's much like what uh, Dave was talking about, where uh, people want to use air power. MacArthur says, no, I'm not going to have the Filipinos be bombed by us. So, and that does take away uh, an advantage that uh, the Americans have. Now, I think one of the, in this particular case, you have guys who've been fighting for two, two and a half years who are, you know, know how to fight. And although they haven't been trained, and in fact, our army really doesn't have doctrine for urban warfare in 1945, uh, they are professional enough that they can adapt. And um, there's, there's some uh, things there, but one of the problems, and it's a problem that we, we face, anyone will face in urban warfare is um, when you go in, you're going you're gonna to damage the city. And you have to ask yourself, why is this city important? And there are cities that maybe are too valuable to be fought for. Like, do you really want to do room to room, house to house fighting in the city of Rome um, uh, or Mecca? Uh, these are probably cities that you just don't fight in at all. Uh, you know, and if it's the enemy city, maybe you don't care if you blow it up. Maybe blowing up Stalingrad or Berlin is fine. You want to punish the enemy, and that's that. So uh, I think one of the things you have to ask yourself is, why are you fighting in this? And one of the criticisms I'm making of MacArthur in my uh, soon-to-become book is he basically kind of freezes, and he doesn't really give good guidance to his uh, unit commanders, and they end up making very tactical decisions that ultimately work against the strategic interests of the United States. But they make great tactical sense if you're a company commander, battalion commander, division commander, and so forth. So I think one of the things you have to ask yourself, regardless of what city you're fighting in or when you're fighting in, is why is this, why is this real estate important? Why are we fighting here? And the answers are can and are very different. So um, why don't we why don't we segue here to um, you know what I because I want to pull the thread on this point about destroying the place in order to save it or liberate it and is that is that worth the cost is the you know the 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 value of the objects um, is it is it worth it is it worth it politically is it um, what what kind of conditions does it create. Uh, and I think back to my experiences in the Middle East. Um, I was in uh, 2007 in Iraq, drove through the city of Fallujah. This was after the battle, and that place was still leveled and and, and rubbleized, uh, and there wasn't a lot of rebuilding going on at that point. And that was obviously 2007. You know, and then ISIS came, so that's a whole other whatever. But then I think back to uh, when I was part of a campaign for the defeat ISIS mission. Um, you know, the prevailing sentiment was, oh, we've got soft forces and our, our Kurdish allies. They'll be able to use a combination of, uh, you know, some air power and some combined arms tactics and, and, and liberate Raqqa from ISIS. Neither side had very good training. ISIS, what they, you know, didn't have much training. The Kurdish uh, forces didn't have much training. Neither of them are professional soldiers, right? Um, and, uh, you know, if you, if you look at pictures of Raqqa after it was liberated, that place looks like Dresden in, in, in 1943, right? So, um, you know, 
and and oh, who's going to rebuild Raqqa? We're not rebuilding Raqqa at this point. It's mm-hmm. it's it's whatever. Yes, people are rebuilding Mosul, but um, Raqqa is rubbleized. So does does did liberating it from ISIS uh, was that symbolically the right call, or or um, you know, did we have to go in house to house and, and drop every building and and whatever, or was there was there a better way? Did did it make for good strategy in terms of doing what we wanted it to do? Uh, Tim, why don't we start this one with you? Because I know you had a segue with with you. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I'm not sure I know the answer. I think it does matter symbolically uh, for the ISIS movement because that was sort of the last stronghold. uh, And therefore, taking it means that ISIS goes from being what's left of a state to being a transnational movement again. Um, And that is not politically insignificant. I think one of the problems we find, though, is fighting in modern cities, again, because of population density, uh, you know, high-rise apartment buildings, all of the other things that are associated with fairly modern cities. It's very hard to take these cities without doing enormous amounts of damage if they're defended. And if we look at Iraq, um, there are some interesting cases. I mean, what did we do in Baghdad in 2003? Um, we deliberately tried not to attack Baghdad. Uh, instead, we did thunder runs up and down the main highways with units of tanks. And we're fortunate in that the Iraqis were not good enough um, to do major damage to those thunder runs. Uh, as a comparison, the Russians tried to do thunder runs in Grozny, and that came out rather poorly in the 1990s. And they tried again moving towards Kiev, and that also turned out poorly. Um, so, you know, that's an effort to try and overawe a population and get it to surrender without actually inflicting damage. Uh, similarly, in Fallujah, at least initially, we tried to surround it because the enemy didn't have heavy weapons and it didn't have fielded conventional forces. We tried to surround it and evacuate out the civilian population and filter them out through a series of inspections so that we you know, made sure the bad guys stayed in and the good people got out. And then we pummeled the city. Um, That's an option in some circumstances. Uh, The Russians tend not to use that technique. They just pummel the city, as we saw in the second round of the the Chechen war. If you look at pictures of Grozny, again, looks very much like Hiroshima or Dresden. Um, They just, they blew the city apart and then moved in and occupied it. No one has figured out how to really fight for an extended period of time with conquest as the objective in urban areas in ways that preserve the civilian population. Um, And, you know, you might look at Israel and Gaza, but Israel isn't trying to take Gaza back. They gave it up. Um, They're simply trying to assert some kind of control over some kinds of behavior. And so even that's not a very good model. Um, I, I think this is a really complicated problem, even for the most professional armies. Go ahead, Dave. So yeah, I would I would echo Tim's. I think Tim's absolutely correct that you can't fight in a city without destroying it. Um, and the question of reconstruction, to me, I think is one is a political question, not a military one. Um, in that um, governments decide what they're going to spend resources on. And so, for example, Stalingrad is leveled uh, in World War II, but it's called Stalingrad. It's important, and so the Soviet government puts a lot of money into rebuilding it. Um, Warsaw in Poland after the war, um, you know, Warsaw does not end up on the Western side of the line and Warsaw is in rubble for years after the war. Um, 
uh, Russian propaganda film, which I just saw, which I'm not going to give you know so full credence to, but the Russians are claiming they're putting enormous amounts of money into Mariupol to build back Mariupol, to repair it, make it a showpiece for the, the benefits of Russian occupation. Again, not sure I believe that, but at least the Russians are making a claim. Um, and so I think that the, the aftermath of urban warfare, um, the politics of this matter much more than what militarily happened in the actual fighting. Yeah, there's actually a good example of this in film. If you watch the very famous movie, The Third Man with uh, Orson Welles, there's some really interesting scenes of Vienna four years after the war ended mm -hmm. and huge portions of Vienna are just rubble. Um, and Vienna, there wasn't nearly as much street fighting in Vienna as there was in other places. There was a lot of aerial bombing, uh, but you get a sense of, you know, how devastating this is and how even in a place where money's sort of being poured in to help Europe recover, um, it takes a long time. And I'm trying to think, I'm blanking on the name of the film. There was a Montgomery Clift movie where he's a GI and ends up kind of adopting this orphaned kid. And there's some good footage in there too of what European cities look like even years after the war. Yeah. Nick, any, any thoughts on this one? Reconstruct. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. It's ultimately, it's a, it's a political decision. I think what makes that, um, and, you know, in my case, the U.S. Army has no option. They have to start rebuilding Manila and it turns out to be well beyond the capacity of the U.S. Army in 1945 to rebuild Manila. Um, they uh, are one of the things that the Japanese do is they sink about 300 ships, and uh, the um, one Navy one star who's put in charge of this, he was responsible for cleaning up uh, some ports, uh, port facilities in Europe, Dunkirk, and a couple of uh, Italian cities, and he said. Japanese knew what they were doing. They put these ships in exactly the right place. It's going to take me a couple of years to clean up these ships because, uh, you know, you have to cut the ships apart. You have to move them. It turns out they're exactly in the wrong spot as far as being able to work on it long term. So da 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 da. Getting all pulling out of the technical details. It's you know you need a port facility. You don't got one. Um, and oh by the way, you've dehoused a million people. Um, that's a lot of people. And given the political nature of the relationship between the uh, Filipinos and the United States and how we run our government, you can't just ignore this. And a lot of the GIs can't ignore it. They're starting, uh, I've got great stories in, in the book about GIs handing their rations to Filipino kids so they can eat. So uh, ultimately it is, a, it, it is a, um, a decision, a political decision. The United States ends up giving a lot of uh, military or a lot of economic assistance to the Philippines after the war. But even then, it's just like any of these other cities, it takes Manila decades to recover from the devastation. Part of that is uh, obviously the you know, Philippines gets political independence and there's less willingness to uh, write checks and there's some political issues inside the city of Manila, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, re if you're going to rebuild a city, if you fight in a city, you're probably going to have to rebuild it. And Maybe you don't want, don't care, you know, um, you know, I'm sure probably Soviets didn't really care to rebuild Berlin, and I'm not sure we care to rebuild Berlin either. So, um, so yeah, whatever, you know, uh, and I would suspect, I, I know very little about this, but I suspect there's very little interest on the part of the Soviets to help the uh, Poles build, rebuild Warsaw. So, um, again, I think it gets to the point of why are you fighting in this city, um, you know, and if it's your city, yeah, you're probably going to want to re rebuild it faster. If it's someone else's city, maybe, maybe not. 
So this is we a, talk, we, go ahead, Tim. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, this is an interesting point that sort of echoes back to some of the things we talked about earlier. The modern city, um, depending on the character of the war you're fighting, um, the emphasis on restoring the city may change considerably. Yeah. Uh, so if you're fighting a, a, a series of sequential operations or campaigns, like we were in 1944 in France, rebuilding cities became really important because the Germans held on to Cherbourg, they held on to Calais, and in doing that, and then they wrecked them. Yeah. And in doing that, they denied us the ability to provide logistic support for forces at the forward edge of the battle area. Over 60% of the logistic support for the advance into France in 1944 came through Marseille, which had not been destroyed. But the Atlantic ports, which we were hoping we would be able to open up and then push logistics to allow us to advance into Germany, they were effectively crippled because the Germans decided to defend them um, very fiercely and effectively, at least for a time. And eventually they surrendered, but as they surrendered, they wrecked the port facilities. Um, that impacted the, the larger war. It meant we couldn't do things in the Low Countries and Germany that we were hoping we could. Um, in other wars, again, you know, the conflict that we were fighting in Iraq in 2000, from 2003 to 2008, once the army collapsed, the, the necessity of preserving the logistic, a potent, potential logistic value of a city was much lower. Um, preserving the political value of a city like Baghdad uh, or Basra was very high. And there were economic things in Basra that we wanted to support so that the new Iraqi state could use a, a port. Um, but it's a different, the character of the war is fundamentally different. So the way in which we treated cities might be, might change in terms of uh, coming up with planning and strategy. Yeah. I know that's a little, a little fluffy, but it, it, I think it is important. Different conflicts are different and the role of cities in them may change depending on the character of the conflict. Well, and, and just very quickly on Cherbourg, which uh, again, a really interesting case, uh, the US and, and allies essentially have to create a different city. Um, by sort of creating a port where no port existed because the city was so important, they had no choice but to fight for it. When it's not available, they're forced into these workarounds um, in order to make up for um, what they've lost when the Germans destroyed Cherbourg. Yeah. And I also say, if you go to the U.S. Civil War, you know, you look at um, a fight for um, Vicksburg, Atlanta, and Richmond. Uh, Vicksburg and Atlanta are more about transportation. You're physically you're cutting the Confederacy in two and then three. You're destroying transportation networks that you really don't care about rebuilding. Um, and then Richmond's important for political reasons. Essentially, the war's almost over when when you take Richmond. So, you know, it's each one's important for a different reason. And it also like. I often like to think about what ifs. What if the Tet Offensive had worked and the, the Viet Cong takes Saigon? I think uh, I think the war is probably over or not quite over, but, you know, you know, three, four, 80 percent. Does so one of the one of the threads I kind of keep hearing people mention is um, we talk about nature of the war. How about the well, I guess it's a Mahanian concept, but nature of the governments? So nature of which side of government you're fighting. We talked about the Soviets who don't care about rebuilding Warsaw, as opposed to the Americans who do have more skin in the game in terms, especially of, of places that we've liberated, 
maybe Berlin is an outlier for, you know, for us, but again, then again, the Marshall plan, we still do rebuild Berlin to, to a degree. So I don't, Dave, let's start with, what, what do you think about character? And it, that is a really interesting question. I'm not, I'm not sure I have something intelligent to say yet. I, I'd want to think <laughs> that through. Um, <laughs> then we'll go to, Jeff. yeah, I, I'm going to pass on that one. <laughs> well, it's I rare that we... I shut myself up, but I'm going to shut myself <laughs> <Yeah>. up. <laughs> well, no, to, to try and cue up Dave so that he'll have something to talk about. Um, you know, Berlin is a really interesting question. Um, on the one hand, it's hugely politically and symbolically important to all of the allies. Right. Um, on the other hand, we make a deal where the Soviets are going to get Berlin. Yeah. And that may be important for a number of reasons. Um, again, the Germans had done enormous damage to Russia. Uh, and so revenge may be part of the motive. Um, also, it's closer to Soviet troops than it is to allied other allied troops at the time that they sort of hashed this out. But the third is the Soviets have no problem sustaining enormous casualties, even against a desperate and beaten German army. And they take, is it three? I'm not sure if it's 300,000 casualties or 300,000 dead in the Berlin campaign, but it's, you know, enormous losses, losses at least as great as the entire French campaign from Normandy to September, 1944. Um, and they take them in a house house fighting uh, and it's brutal and kill millions of civilians um, in, in Germany over the, the last couple of years of the war. So yeah, I mean, who's fighting matters a lot. Um, you know, in the Irish case, I, I say this both to the Irish Defense Forces and also to academic audiences. I mean, Ireland was really lucky that it was fighting the British because for all of the nastiness that the British Empire has done around the world for centuries, and its record is understandably quite spotty, um, the British fight in Ireland in a relatively restrained way. And the Russians would not have fight, fought with that kind of restraint. Um, so these things do matter, right? Um, the Irish are immensely, uh, in, in the guerrilla war from 1919 to 22, the Irish are immensely concerned with maintaining resistance in Dublin because it's the capital. And as long as they're there fighting, it means the British can't even control their own administrative capital in Ireland. So we have memos that are written by the chief of staff of the IRA who's saying, look, you know, the primary fighting theater is in Cork, and Tipperary, but the most important place for us to continue fighting is in Dublin. Um, as long as we are struggling in Dublin, the fight is alive. It's a, it's a nationwide fight. And we see echoes of this with the provisional IRA during the troubles in the 19, from 68 to 98. Um, the provisional IRA is very focused on maintaining resistance in Belfast because there have been campaigns in Northern Ireland in the past that have primarily focused on the border area and the agricultural areas and the areas where there's a, a, a majority locally of nationalist supporters of unification. But Belfast is the key. They have to keep resistance going in Belfast. So in irregular wars, there's a, an incredible emphasis on fighting in cities, maintaining resistance in these major administrative centers. That tends to force governments, whoever they are, to more and more aggressive tactics, um, which sometimes are gonna be self-defeating, right? And this is something that we saw in Iraq is trying to figure out how to maintain that balance of being able to put down resistance forces without alienating more and more of the population. 
that's why cities in irregular warfare are so critical. Um, in conventional warfare, again, somewhat different. Sure. Interesting. Okay, Dave, we'll go to you. Yeah, and again, just a, a comment on, on what Tim just said. Now, I, I would never say, obviously, that the British government is in any way like the, the Nazi government or the Soviet government. Um, but I'd be interested. I mean, uh, uh, Tim, you said earlier that the, the, the resistance force in the Easter Rising is 1,000, 1,500 men. Um, what if, again, this is a big what if, but what if the British were dealing with 10,000 or 15,000? And what would Dublin Center look like if yeah. the British were dealing with mass in the way that the Soviets and the Nazis are fighting out with mass mm. in big cities? And again, this is, again, not to say that the British are, are, are like the, the, the Nazis, but um, that the circumstances are somewhat different. And that might explain how different outcomes in terms yeah. of what Dublin looks like as opposed to Warsaw. We do have the case study of the Peloponnesian War where... Uh... At the beginning, the Athenians are restrained in terms of how they put down um, Mytilene, but by, you know, 15 years into the war, Milos is a very different, uh, you know, kill all the military age males, sell all the women and children into slavery, but you know, denigration of a democracy over time when it's at war. But uh, we can back. always bring in the Peloponnesian War. That's right. That's right. Have right. to. Right? <laughs> well, but the, the flip side is the war begins with an act that is every bit as savage as Milos. Um, and the Peloponnesian League gets a pass. They put Plataea under siege. They kill all the men. They sell all the women and kids into slavery. They raise the city. And this is the city where the United Greeks defeated the Persians. I mean, this is this is sacred ground. And at the beginning of the war, the Peloponnesians come in and they're like, yeah, this is what free the Greeks means. Um, you know, if you really want to talk about city war, I mean, the best example is probably the Sicilian campaign. Right. How do you deal with a massive city? And Syracuse is as big as Athens. How are you going to use the forces that are available at the time um, to try and conquer a city that is capable of very significant resistance? And as we find out, the, the Athenians, you know, there is the one sort of wing of a wing in a prayer strategy. Let's land and march down Main Street. Right. Um, but everybody else's strategy is, no, 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 no. We don't want to go into Syracuse. We want to do other things. We want to besiege it. We want to stir up an alliance against it. But we don't want to go in there because it's just going to be too hard. Sort of interesting. I think the, I think the comment about type of government is, is important because, you know, let's face it, you know, and everyone listening to this and everyone talking here knows this, war is a violent, ugly business. End of story. Um, you know. It doesn't matter who you are, uh, but um, democracy, monarchy, you know, uh, fascist dictatorship, communist dictatorship, um, and ugly things happen. But ultimately, I think, you know, um, the, the nature of the government does matter. And there are other factors to consider. I think Dave hit on something very important. Mass is an issue. Um, you know, that is very big and you know also the political relationship i think is important uh and people can make mistakes um you know there was a book that came out um a while back and i dave probably know this better basically looked at the systematic rape that uh the uh, red army is conducting in germany uh in, in you know um something like i forget the numbers but it's uh, something on the scale of like one fourth of all the German women in Eastern Germany are uh, victimized. And that creates enormous problems uh, if after the war, you know, that's going to be resentment that you're not going to forget. Um, and you don't have to be the victim. You can be relative of the victim. Um, so 
there is something of this, you know, you want, might want to punish the enemy, but there might be limits to how much you do, how much punishment you offer, because it ultimately might not work for your political interests. And um, these, this is always going to be an issue. And then you also have to ask yourself, you know, how are we going to be treated in the eyes of the world? And that's maybe not that important, but the Germans don't fight in Paris in 1944. They don't, I mean, do you really want, I burn Paris on your resume? And Matthew Ridgway says, Hitler did. <laughs> yeah. uh, and Matthew Ridgway says, I don't want, you know, I blew up Rome on my, on my uh, resume. And he basically says, I'm not going to do this. And, um, you know, there's enormous, uh, you know, religious, artistic uh, uh, monuments, uh, you know, ruins, et cetera, in the city of Rome, um, certainly probably more, more so than, than Paris. And, you know, destroying Rome to liberate it, uh, I don't think, you know, people are going to forgive that. And I mean, Italians are still upset about the Monte Cassino. So, um, you know, you have to, I think the nature of the government is important, but you also have to always be asking yourself, what are the political objectives? And, you know, that's what Clausewitz tells us. And really, really the case with uh, urban warfare, because so many people live there. And it is almost always a pol politically valuable. Hmm. Okay. So why don't we go to our, our wrap up final thoughts question in terms of, uh, of this concept of, uh, you know, good idea, bad idea to fight in cities. Um, obviously, everything we've, we've talked about thus far, uh, the politics matter, the, the nature of the government matters, nature of the war matters, uh, the training on both sides matter, whether it's insurgency, whether it's two conventional forces. So a lot of great thoughts have come out. But uh, Nick, why don't we start with you in terms of uh, final thoughts here? Um, I think, um, you know, it's probably the type of fighting that you might want to avoid if you can, but you don't always get those choices. So um, um, I'll leave it at that. That's my, my 30 second nutshell. Awesome. Tim, we'll go to you next. Uh, again, I think the character of the conflict matters a great deal. If you're fighting an irregular war, um, you may have to go into a certain order over the city, and that's going to be difficult. And it's going to be costly. Um, it won't be nearly as costly as if you're fighting a conventional war and you choose to take a defended city rather than bypass, surround, and hopefully um, you know, isolate it. Um, so in conventional war, I would say if you can, the preferred, the preferred solution will be to bypass, leave it in your rear and let it sort of wither on the vine. In an irregular war, you may not have those choices if you are an external intervening power trying to support a local government or establish a local government because political control of cities is gonna be necessary for any government to gain legitimacy and survive. Um, so, it really depends on the conflict and the consequences of different kinds of operations are going to be different um, for the city and the occupants. Awesome. Thank you, Tim. Dave, final thoughts. So it kills me that I'm not going to be able to talk more about Stalingrad, but I actually want to look at Warsaw um, for some final thoughts because I think it illustrates lots of the things we've been talking about. So you think about Warsaw and urban warfare in the, the last few years of World War II. So it starts off with two of these uprisings that Tim was talking about, sort of nationalist uprisings for demonstrative effect in a political center. So there's the Jewish uprising in Warsaw, 
And then subsequent, there's the Polish uh, Home Army uprising in Warsaw, both of which were intended to some degree, I mean, obviously self-preservation, but particularly the Home Army is aiming at political demonstration that we Poles will liberate Warsaw, not the Soviets. So again, you've got this kind of urban uprising intended for political purpose. And at the time that the, the Home Army launches its uprising, the Soviets are racing full speed, hundreds of miles through Eastern Europe to get to Warsaw. And they make a choice not to go into Warsaw. Uh, this is the famous moment in which Stalin abandons the Polish resistance to be slaughtered by the Germans. And certainly Stalin um, obviously wanted the Polish resistance dead. That said, there's actually military calculation here too. So Warsaw's on the wrong side of a river from the Soviet point of view. They've advanced hundreds of miles in a couple months. Um, the Germans are there in force. The Soviets decide, I think in part because of they want Polish resistance gone, but also on military grounds, they don't want to have to fight in a city at the end of very long supply lines that are catching up with them. And then, this is the final thing, um, Hitler makes a deliberate decision to level Warsaw, that Warsaw will be punished by being systematically destroyed. Um, you know, heritage, smeritage, Hitler doesn't care, destroy the city. Um, so Warsaw, in a weird way, illustrates many of the themes that we've been talking about in across this discussion of, of urban warfare, which I think has been a ton of fun and I really enjoy it. So I, I will leave it with that. Awesome. All right. Well, this is informative and educational as always. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, very much. Um, and we will see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.